Blog Talk Radio. And uh, hello again. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. Uh, you are watching and listening to the Bachelor News radio show on IBM TV uh, and StreamYard. We thank you for joining us. I'm L.A. Bachelor. Mark uh, Lee will be joining me shortly. Uh, here on the show, this 30-minute edition, we uh, uh, talk about various topics, uh, just like we do on our two-hour broadcast later in the day. Um, and we welcome you to make your comments here if you're watching on Facebook or um, anywhere else. You can make your comments known uh, in the chat room. Uh, it is open for you uh, to do so. I want to talk about the double standard, and this is really it's football, but it also has something to do with uh, social justice or injustice in, in this case. Um, Tim Tebow, if you're not familiar with him, was a Heisman Trophy winner in college, college football, played quarterback uh, at the University of Florida. He was a Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, he got drafted in the NFL, bounced around a few teams. He played in a few games. But he's been out of the NFL for eight years. This is the same Tim Tebow when he was in the NFL, kneeled during games. He prayed. He kneeled. He said, as a Christian, I'm paraphrasing, he, he thought he should pray before the games, and, and he's, he's kneeling and, and, and doing these things. Um, as the flag uh, and the national anthem is going on. Now, keep in mind, Tim Tebow has not been in the league uh, for eight years, the Jacksonville Jaguars, which is where he's from, his hometown team, apparently has signed him for a year contract. Um, so that eight-year run of not being in the league, he is now back in the league with Jacksonville. Now, he's not playing quarterback. He's playing tight end. So you look at Another situation with another player, Tim Tebow's white, if you're um, not understanding or, or didn't know. Uh, you look at a Colin Kaepernick, who most of you should know. Of course, he was the, the black quarterback who kneeled at the national during the national anthem. Um, and the controversy and the venom and all the hate and the division – uh, came with that uh, people people who were believers in the national anthem and the flag uh, had issues with him. They said he was disrespecting the flag. Uh, Colin Kaepernick and all those who get it, including us, uh, understood that he was standing, he was kneeling um, to show his in protest. Police brutality, uh, social injustice, um, uh, discrimination, uh, criminal justice reform that needs to happen, the discrepancies, the high discrepancies between people of color and white people that are incarcerated. He was, that's what it was about. Yet not only people made it out to be the flag, he never got back into the NFL to this day. He is a quarterback. He's a quarterback that actually went to the Super Bowl. 
unlike mm-hmm. unlike um, Tim Tebow, yet he can't sniff a job in the NFL. So, Mark Lee, yeah. hello to you. I, I mean, the hypocrisy in this is so wide open, so apparent. Yeah, so I mean, it's apparent. Without a doubt, it's just ridiculous how we see uh, this is uh, and, and sports. We always talk about as a microcosm of society. So it, we see this in sports. Had had this been L.A. taking a knee at a game or something or a knee at a uh, an event, they would have probably tried to ban me, too. But but talk about this. A, a quarterback that made it to the Super Bowl versus a quarterback that barely could play it comes back into the league allowed to play another position the tight end position meanwhile the guy who actually got to the Super Bowl who did the right thing when he was kneeling can't sniff the NFL yeah it makes no sense to me I've been one of those people that thought that Colin should have been in uh, ages ago and it definitely seems like he's been blackballed and we do know that blackballing does exist within what goes on sports and all of that so I've just actually been surprised that he's not had the opportunity to get back and play again uh, a sport that he dearly loves and for doing as you said the right thing he was actually just making a stand about social justice and social uh justices that exist in a society and it's something that um many of our athletes should be doing on a more regular basis so he was doing something some have been doing, and I would argue they've been doing it for decades and even centuries. There are people that have talked about definitely um, the great uh, track runners that gave the uh, Black Power symbol during the 1968 Olympics. And of course, even folks like Jack Johnson way back when in boxing were making social justice statements. And that's just two examples that I'm aware of. And there are many more that have existed throughout history. As a matter of fact, we just had the horse race, and I know we had our first black jockey in a hundred years and he didn't do all that well. I think he finished 10th out of like 15 horses, but it looks like the horse that won might've actually been part of a cheating ring. And I've actually been having some mixed thoughts about that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts because I know that a lot of time um, athletes are given ointments and they're given ointments in order to be healed and all of that. And apparently that's what happened with this horse. And we know the horse has no clue as to what he's been given and all of that, but definitely it does look as I'm hearing the stories from Bob Batford and others, as if they're saying that um, whatever the illegal substance was, it was actually within an ointment. And therefore, they may be claiming that they didn't know quite all of what was in that ointment. And that could be getting this horse disqualified from the Kentucky Derby, even though I understand he will be running in the Preakness. But I'm just interested to know your thoughts as a sports fan. Do you think that that's even fair to the horse? and to the team of Bob Baffert if they truly did not know <clears throat> all of the ingredients. Because, I mean, I take aspirin, I take other things. I don't know even some of my foods that I always know what's in them all the time. So what is your thoughts about that? Is it even fair for us to go after this animal and his team and everything if it's some of the medicine that's included in a bigger ointment that sounds like it's an ointment for their legs and everything? Because I think the horse was saying, well, not the horse was saying, but their team was saying that they had tendonitis or something along those lines. Well, I don't necessarily know about the horse, but I will say this. The NFL always has a list of uh, banned substances, uh, but it's really unfair to a lot of uh, the players. Not all. Some are going to cheat. 
They're going right. to do that. Um, but they have they they update the list periodically. So let's say if aspirin wasn't on the list and an athlete took um some aspirin and then took a test and aspirin showed up on the list, then you're screwed. Exactly. So, that's, so that's that's part of the the, the problem with with uh, with performance enhancing drugs, the way they ban them, the how they put the list together. Players associations always complain about it. And that's part of their uh, CBA collecting bargaining agreement. But right. but it goes on all all the time. It goes on all the time. It goes on in all the sports. I did want to come back to the whole concept of social justice as well, because I don't know if you realize it, but I believe it was earlier today. Or if it wasn't today, it was uh, definitely within the last day or two. No, it was actually earlier today that the NBA announced a new award. And I think it's an award that is much needed and much uh, deserved of the person that got it and everything. But the NBA to announce, today announced the creation of the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Social Justice Champion Award, a new annual award that will recognize the current NBA player for pursuing social justice and upholding the league's decade-long values of equality, respect, and inclusion. So the award is named after six-time NBA champion and Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Famer Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and the recipient will have advanced Abdul-Jabbar's mission to drive change and inspire others to reflect on injustice and take collective action in their communities over the previous year. And they're saying that the award, uh, the winner of the award will get to select an organization, receive a $100,000 contribution on his behalf, and the other four finalists will each select an organization to receive a $25,000 contribution. So it sounds like each year there will be five awards uh, given, uh, one major award, and then four that are like semi-finalists or whatever, but that combined will be $200,000 going toward social justice causes. So that just came out today, and I thought that that was a great idea and everything. And they actually talked about, um, matter of fact, Abdul-Jabbar has said he's been a champion of inclusivity dating back to his youth. He said that at the age of 17, he met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his hometown of Harlem, and he was inspired by King's message, and he was uh, – committed to using his influence as a visible athlete to engage on critically important social issues during the civil rights movement. He attended the 1967 Cleveland Summit where Bill Russell, Jim Brown, and other prominent black athletes gathered to discuss Muhammad Ali's refusal to serve in the Vietnam War. And they also said that he's been continuing to promote equality and combat discrimination in the decades since his retirement from basketball. So he's definitely been continuing to do a lot of work, even work around STEM and things of that nature, but particularly STEM in underserved, I should say, underserved communities. So I just thought that that was a great thing along those same lines of what we're talking about, where Colin should be recognized, but I'm glad to see that the NBA is going to recognize some folks for doing this kind of work on a consistent basis and everything. And apparently the NBA and the NBA PA have established a national basketball social justice coalition. So they've actually done that. And earlier this week, the uh, five members of the NBA PA met with 
uh, Francis to discuss social justice. So these are folks that aren't just doing it, uh, giving it lip service. They're actually doing the work and actually getting out there and uh, making a difference and making a change. But uh, L.A., what are your thoughts about that? Uh, it seems to me that this is something that should have been done decades ago, but I am glad that it's being done now. And I'm sure that folks like LeBron and folks like that that have been doing that kind of work will be some of those that will get honored for their work finally and their organizations will get a nice little um, boost in their um, budgets and all of that. But what are your thoughts? Well, first, I mean, it, from the a winning standpoint, there's not too many athletes, namely basketball. Maybe um, I would definitely – Bill Russell won 11 titles. But when you look at Kareem going back to his, his college years, three – you know, um, national championships, the US, UCLA, he won uh, with the Milwaukee Bucks with Oscar Robertson. He goes over to the Lakers with Showtime, with Magic Johnson, and, and all those guys. I mean, all-time leading score, six MVPs, I mean, all-star selections. He's got the, the record on that. This guy's been winning all his um, adult life. Um, having said that, it, it, it really does remind me of Colin Kaepernick, but to a higher degree, because he's been doing it uh, a long time. You mentioned, you know, the Russells and the Jim Browns and the Muhammad Ali's. He's been working. He worked with those guys way back in the 60s up until this day. He's been doing it forever. So no one I I could think of deserves a, a this type of award uh, more than Kareem. Having said that, again, I I appreciate what the NBA is doing, but there is an unwritten, uh, what word should I say, uh, banishment as a coach, as Kareem, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. In other words, uh, I don't know what feathers he ruffled in the NBA over the years, but Kareem's been trying to be a coach in the NBA forever. And he hadn't even seen uh, uh, an assistant position. As a matter of fact, the head coaching position he had was on an Indian reservation. Hmm. So the NBA has not even, at least the, the, the franchises, have not embraced him as a coach. We saw Patrick Ewing go through stuff like that for a while. Now he, he's got a um, – he's been a coach in, in the NBA and, and college. He's back at his alma mater in Georgetown. But – Kareem just, I don't know. Again, I don't know who he upset, but he hasn't had a, a, a chance to get a job. So if they want to take it a step further um, and honoring this man, uh, he should be on a coaching roster somewhere in the National Basketball Association. But the, I think the parallel with, with Colin Kaepernick, I think, is, is well um, connected because they they both have stood for things they and and I think that they both and and it's not written you won't find it in any documents or emails with owners but they have both been kind of barred from their positions or at least some form of position in their prospective leagues no I definitely agree with you and I think that they definitely have deserved a, a coaching job and even though I'm very uh, proud of the job that Patrick uh did with um, his uh, alma mater and everything in terms of Georgetown. Um, I agree with some of the other commentators in the sports commentating world that he deserved a shot at a head coaching job 
and definitely uh, hopefully he'll get it as uh, some of the uh, teams go around and start looking for new coaches depending on what happens in the playoffs and all of that. But it'll be interesting to see because there are definitely some folks that were tremendous, great athletes that never really got a shot at um, coaching and are actually part of the coaching tree and all of that, but they haven't had that shot that they richly deserve. So I can think of a few folks that probably need to get a coaching shot. I was glad to see, like I said, in a past show that Shaka Smart got an opportunity to coach on the um, professional level and all of that, um, not the professional, but on the college level by coming to my alma mater and uh, coaching there at Marquette. But he's basically restructuring a whole nother team because a lot of the players that were on Wojo's team have uh, either left because of graduation or because of wanting to move on. And some of his players that he had recruited to Texas have now joined him there at Marquette. So it's going to be a whole nother team. I'll be curious to see whether uh, which players, I know there will be some, but which players from last year's team actually come on because I know he's getting some players from the JUCO level and uh, definitely his own recruits and all of that. So I'm actually thinking that he's actually putting his footprint on this team very early. I know that sometimes when new coaches come in, they have to wait to put in their footprint because they got to wait to see what the old coaches' imprints are left and everything. But it looks like he's putting his imprint on at a very early stage. Now, I can't say the same thing for Hubert Davis because Hubert Davis is also a first-time African-American coach right here in our area of uh, Chapel Hill and all of that. And he's actually going to be taking over for Roy Williams. But, you know, he's still got many of Roy's players, and it'll probably be a few years before he gets to put his actual imprint, even though he was a Roy Williams uh, disciple and definitely a Dean Smith disciple. I think that the pattern will still be the same. And, Mark, let's see what type of leash he'll be on. Um, Because, A, you know how Tar Heel fans are. They're expecting to win. Um, And, B, as a black coach – you know, it, you know, it, we have to be perfect. Just like in society, we have to be better than our white counterparts in a lot of situations. And when you, you look at Carolina, it's a high-profile position um, as a coach. He doesn't have any coaching experience. He, he'll get that honeymoon because he does have Roy Williams players. But let's see what happens when controversy comes, when they're struggling, when, when you'll see – uh, how fans and alum and the president and athletic director respond to, and the media um, go after him if they, they do. I, I remember Charlie Strong, you know, mm-hmm. uh, coached at the University of Texas. He was a dead on, he was dead on arrival. I mean, right. Texas football is, is huge football, but, you know, as a black man, he came in, they gave him, they gave him a five-year deal. He only coached three of them, and they let him go. He he actually brought in more recruits since Mac Brown was there. He brought in, uh, they won more games in the first two years of any other coach of recent years there. Uh, and he made sure his kids got this, uh, the class. Oh, by the way, that's called a student athlete, so you're supposed to be doing that. Uh, in the first place, but it, you know, he didn't get a chance to finish out his tenure and we always have to be better. Um, and, and here's the other caveat. If we do well, it's the players. If we don't do well, it's us in a lot of cases. 
Right. So the player, I mean, case in point, when you look at a couple of uh, NFL quarterbacks now that have moved around, Carson Wentz went from the Eagles to the Colts, white quarterback in his first rookie, he's still on his rookie contract, the first five years. Um, they moved, they, the Eagles traded him, and the media said, well, you know, he had five quarterback coaches and the system was wrong, this, that, and the other thing. Cam Newton just couldn't play. You know, we can't, they, now you look at Carson Wentz and Cam Newton. Carson Wentz, maybe not the, the greatest example because Cam's been in the league forever now, um, but when Cam struggled, it was Cam struggling. When Carson struggled, it's the coach, it's the system, right? Now, they always compare Cam to other quarterbacks at, at that you know, that level or that tenure. Philip Rivers played at North Carolina State, NC State. He right. played forever, barely made the playoffs, never sniffed the Super Bowl. Yet he'll get more credit than Cam, who actually won an MVP and actually got a Super Bowl. And he had, if he had a quarterback, I mean, if he had a coach and an offensive line, they probably believe would have won the Super Bowl. But again, when it's when it comes to leadership roles, quarterback, coach, uh, is either the players or the system, depending upon what race you are. I mean, that is, and it's no. it's right there. It's out there. No, yeah. And LA, I want to go even further than that. I want to go into, we're talking about the players and the coaches, both on the college and the professional level. But, you know, I was reading this very interesting article and actually one of my uh, fellow um, alumna from Marquette is now joined the ranks of what I'm getting ready to talk about, which is that we have definitely supplied the bulk of the talent for a lot of folks to get very rich, but there is very little minority ownership in the um, sports world and all of that. As a matter of fact, people talk about Michael Jordan, and apparently, you know, Michael Jordan has got uh, majority ownership of the Charlotte Hornets, and apparently he's now getting ready to join, or at least last year, he joined NASCAR because he announced that he'd be partnering with Denny Hamlin and uh, with uh, the team that Bubba Wallace is part of to form this NASCAR Cup. And so I believe he still got that going on. I know I haven't heard anything of that being dissolved and everything. And then recently, one of the teams that's a contender um, which is the Utah Jazz on the West and everything. Um, my fellow alumni of Marquette, Dwayne Wade, is now part of their ownership team. So he's got an ownership stock and everything, but he's not a majority owner. He's just got some stock in the ownership of the Utah Jazz. So like I said, I was reading this article and they were talking about Jordan and his NASCAR um, venture and everything. They also talked to Brad, Brad Darty, a former NBA All-Star who is a co-owner in uh, JDT, Darty Racing, and uh, definitely it looks like there might be a couple of other things that we've got ownership in. But there's not a lot, and that's across the board. As a matter of fact, it says Saheed Khan is a uh, owner, and he's Pakistanian-born of uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars and everything, so he's a billionaire. And he agreed to purchase the Jacksonville Jaguars for $760 million. And, of course, there's also, I believe, the brother that is still owning the Toronto team and everything and all of that. And then you've got Vic Randis, who apparently is an Indian-American business executive, and he led a California-based group that purchased the majority share of the Sacramento Kings, and that was for $125 million back in 2013 and then they're also talking about Kim Pakella who is a South Korean African American I mean South Korean American businesswoman and president of both the Buffalo Bills 
and the Buffalo Cybers, Artie Morana, who's a Latino Vietnam veteran who bought the Angels for like $184 million back in 2003. Mark Lazari, who is a, um, let's see what his nationality is, that's a Marrakesh-born millionaire, and he's the, the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. But like I said, that's like a few folks, and I think that's pretty much the ones that they named in this article. I think I just went to the end of the article, and I can't think of it put out any more other than that. So there might be a few other ones, but it's not like a lot of minority ownership and some of these minority ownerships of the cultures. They're not just from African-American cultures. They're, as I said, one of them was Muslim American. Somebody else was Indian American, but they're from other cultures. So uh, even though we've uh, got a lot of athletes that made a whole lot of money, it doesn't seem like a lot of them ex have done the Dwayne Wade route and have tried to even get into the ownership picture. So I know Dwayne Wade has done that. Definitely um, Jordan has done it. But how many others have done it? And is that something that we, that we should consider more of? Should we be looking more at the ownership side? Because that's where the real money's made. Uh, well, I mean, that's Captain Obvious. Uh, it, we we should. And don't forget the Williams sisters have a part of the Miami Heat, a small right. portion. But just like Dwayne Wade, interesting enough, not having stock in the Heat where he played. But anyway, um, just like Dwayne Wade and others, really – when you break down all the people of color you mentioned in terms of African-Americans, in terms of real ownership in that group that you said, Jordan and uh, Brad Doherty, who's been in NASCAR scene, he probably preferred NASCAR than his basketball uh, for years now. Maybe the, the only two um, that I can think of in terms of uh, black ownership, and, uh, of course, but, you know, stock. And ownership is two different things. I, I, I own stock, but I don't have any say in the companies that right. I own stock in. So obviously that's not um, – that's nice to say. And, you know, with all this, you know, I'm sure the CEOs and, and CFOs of these companies want to say, hey, I got Dwayne Wade part of my my uh, organization. But he's not sitting at the, the table. We want to sit at the table and not only – sit at the table we want to own the table we should as you said uh like everything else in this country money has been made on the back of of african americans and i i think really until we change the culture within ourselves first right. it's not going to happen it it's okay for us to talk about this right but if you get someone that comes on the line and it says sports and they're we're talking about this and ownership. Uh, you know, I want to see. I, I want. I just want to watch the game. I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want to boycott. I just want to see the game. They don't want to get involved. They, no, they, they got to have a consciousness. They don't want to get involved, but they're involved in a lot of other ways. Because one of the other articles that I found that was quite interesting. And this was actually from last. Well, actually, I think this was from earlier today and everything. But there was actually a young lady. Um, looks like a young. WNBA star, a white NBA star and everything, but she became just the 10th player in WNBA history to have a signature shoe in the 2010. So the WNBA has been going on for a while and um, this young lady, everything, and I'm trying to pull up her name. Brianna and everything. Taylor? Was it Brianna, Brianna Taylor. She's yeah. the first one to actually get this deal and it was with a German sportswear manufacturer. So definitely uh, Brianna Stewart has uh, this deal. Seattle's Storm star, and she's part of Puma's 
she moves us women's platform, but they said that she signed a long-term endorsement deal with Puma. But, you know, you would think that there'd be a lot more. The WNBA has not been around all that long, but it's been around for 25 years, and she's only the 10th one and the first one since Candace Parker had her Adidas shoes back in 2010. So, like I said, there's a number of ways that we should also be looking at getting those kind of corporate deals as well. I mean, I know there are a lot of those on the man's side of sports, but I'm thinking it should be on the women's side of sports and also in other sports as well. So definitely some of the sports that are not as uh, prominent, you know, we'll say, in the commercial side and well, all of that. And, well, keep in mind, the WNBA has been around for 25 years, but the NBA runs it. So oh, yes. they're under the w, the NBA. So if we're not going to see shoe deals and ownerships uh, amongst black men in the NBA or other sports, oh, we can forget about about black women. I mean, Brianna Brianna Stewart, who's a white player, played at UConn. Um, she's ahead of the game, and so our, their counterparts, our sisters, is even lower in the totem pole. So that's a whole different ball game, if you will that needs to be pushed forth. I mean, because, I mean, quite frankly, um, black women are going to support. They're going to support just about anything. They're going to be in tune. They're going to be conscious. So if we wanted them to go and boycott something, they would do it. Now, some of us, we don't want that. I just want to see a three-pointer, a touchdown, and a home run. And the home runs don't fit, you know, pretty much don't look like us anyway, but we don't want to, until we get conscious, until we figure out and and really understand that Oprah Winfrey has a lot of money. She owns her own network. How many other Oprah Winfrey's are there? You know, we can have a lot of money, but if we don't own, I mean, I can have money in my bank account, but I don't own the bank. I mean, it just, we have to understand that. Yeah, we definitely don't own the bank, but we also got folks that are going into new ventures and everything, because actually one of the players, I believe, came out of this area, even though he uh, went to school in the Northeast and everything. But I just recently saw this a couple of days ago, and I'm seeing another article about it right now. But There's going to be a new thing called the Basketball Africa League, and they've actually got some great partnerships in terms of corporate sponsorships, and they're planning to reach fans in 215 countries and territories, 15 languages, and they've definitely got some great partners, including NBA TV, Instant Video, BN Sports, ESPN, and Canal Plus. So they're definitely trying to bring an entire basketball league to uh, the motherland and everything. And it is my understanding, and this is where I was going to get your thoughts and everything, that a very well-known rapper has signed a deal to play with one of those teams that being none other than uh, Mr. Cole. So I understand that Mr. J. Anthony Cole, I believe is the name, is going to be playing in this particular international league. And apparently he was quite a good player when he was over there at St. John's and everything. But what is your thoughts about somebody that is more known as a rapper than they are anything else, but they have apparently had a good game back in the day and everything, and now they're going to be signing with the – the uh, um, with this uh, basketball league is coming out of Africa and everything. So Jay Cole and everything. I remember reading this article. It said that he is looking forward to playing in this African league and everything. So what are your thoughts about the American rapper Jay Cole going out there to play for a Rwandan club? So yes, it came out about two days ago that he's going to be playing for a Rwandan club. And like I said, 
he's got those ties to North Carolina and everything, having uh, gone to school, I believe, in Sanford. Well, just to put a wrap on the uh, WNBA uh, before I get to that, um, the average kicker or punter in the NFL, which all you do is kick every now and then, makes more money than any of the WNBA players in the league. And they're playing full court all these games, all this contact. In fact, WNBA players, the women have to go overseas to make more money. They make, they've had players leave the NBA, WNBA for a year just to go make more money than playing the league. So just imagine that. Um, you know, if it's, we're, we're creatures of habit, you know, we, we're, we're a lot of us don't like to look or think or be outside the box, which is part of the reason why we're in what we're in and the, uh, the issues we have. So he could be a famous rapper, but if he's a famous rapper in the LA basketball league, I don't know how much, unless you do some super marketing around it, I don't know how much it will, will take you add in it's Africa. There's a whole nother conversation we can get into another time. So I don't know how effective it will be for the league, that league, if, if it's black owned and operated uh, more power to them. Uh, I just don't know if it'll have a big impact. Uh, it, it could be Jordan probably went there. You might, you might have some people look at it, but we're creatures of habit. We're the NBA, we're the NFL. And that's why you've seen all these other little other leagues that have had good concepts, good players fall by the wayside because Americans want American stuff. And that, right. that's, a, that's not even a race thing. That's an American thing. And it's interesting. He's actually going to go play for a place that has, you know, had some very interesting history because, like I said, he's going to be playing for the team out of Rwanda. And if anybody knows some of the movies that have been made about Rwanda and some of Rwanda's history, it has definitely been a very uh, brutal kind of regimes that have come out of there and everything. So, like I said, I know that a lot of times societies change, and I'm not saying that just because they were that way way back when that they are still that way, but it's just interesting in my mind that he chose to play in Rwanda of all of the places because Rwanda definitely has a very rich history in terms of negativity. So, definitely that's the team that he's going to be playing for, and it'll be interesting to see whether that plays a factor into even what kind of fans will go and decide to join him and everything in terms of supporting that, because definitely Rwanda had some rich history, just like Uganda has. Right. And just to, I mean, to your point, I mean, to have a league over there with the violence that has happened over there and the change of uh, the, the civil war that's been taking place over there, just have a, a, a basketball league. It's got to be good for morale and it's, it's, it's good for everything. I think. Yeah, I think it should be good, and hopefully that'll be something that'll help out and all of that. And speaking of folks that have decided to buy things, apparently a group that is connected to Alex Rodriguez has decided to purchase the Minnesota Timberwolves for $1.5 billion. So, you know, I guess that after he had that uh, non-success with his last love interest, he's decided to go and spend a whole lot of money buying a team because that's a whole lot more money than I can even dream of having everything, but he's going to go ahead and invest it in the, the Timberwolves. Who knows? Maybe he'll bring the Timberwolves back to some sort of uh, better prominence. All of that. He did have a lot of success in his own baseball career, so maybe now he can help the uh, Timberwolves also become better as well, because it seems like he's teamed up with one of Walmart's e-commerce's chiefs in terms of putting together this deal. So it looks like he's going to be part of a deal as well. Well, you know, 
the bottom line as we, we close is that if, if we're talking about ownership, we have to be part of uh, the fight. If we can protest um, racial issues and, and social issues, um, sports is no different. Ownership yep. is no different. Ownership, and it's not even sports. It's ownership. Um, you know, you look at the Marcus Garveys and 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 even you look at uh, you know the uh, other uh, people out there and organizations that say, listen, we if we can't get in, maybe we build our own. I mean, we yep. look at Black Wall Street, uh, how mm-hmm. we were we were thriving back then. And then we were infiltrated by a lot of people that look like us in some cases. And, and there's our demise. We need to take that back because, listen, the good old boy network don't want you in. They're going to let a couple people in. But the only way to get to the other side, I call them the opposition, is through their pockets. You take away that money. You protest and you take away that money. And protest doesn't mean you have to be on the street. Protest means getting the word out. I mean, if you're going to use Facebook and Twitter all day to take selfies, then put some real information out there. Why are you doing it? I mean, no, for real. We've got to do that. We've got to put that real information out there. And a lot of times, even when we think about things that were great in our society, we didn't even necessarily always own those because I've, as I've read and studied up on the Negro League and everything, some of those franchises were actually owned by European Americans and everything along that line. And what is one of the biggest sports franchises in terms of like popularity and kind of that circus popularity is the Harlem Globetrotters. And I don't think that we own the Harlem Globetrotters. I think that we had a lot of great players in the Harlem Globetrotters, but as I recall, I'm not 100% sure, and if I'm wrong and folks are listening and they know differently, I want to say it was maybe even a Jewish American that was the actual owner of the team and everything. So it seems to me that we definitely need to do a better job of ownership, and we've been needed to do this historically for a while. So definitely even some of the things that we pride ourselves on, like the Negro League and like the Harlem Globetrotters, we don't always even always own that because sometimes there are other people that are in the true ownership that are in the uh, collection part of the business and everything. So I'm not saying that there wasn't some ownership in the Negro League, and I'm not even saying necessarily the Harlem Globetrotters didn't have some ownership as well. But I do know that in a lot of cases, the ownership was from other societies because they saw the worth of what we were doing, and they wanted to make some income off of it. So like I said, they might have even bought some of the franchises as things went on and all of that. So that's just mm-hmm. something that we've got to do a better job of. And it's like you said, we're wrapping up. But I know I was talking on the Gamers Den earlier today with Jatobi, and we were speculating, one, on a couple of things. One, whether we like to play in-game or not. Um, Jatobi's actually a fan of it because he thinks that, that it stops tanking and all of that. But I was wondering what your thoughts of the play-in game is. And also, it's early. We haven't even lined up all 10 teams, even though most of them are pretty much locked in. But do you have a favorite? And if so, who do you think folks need to be looking at for the NBA since we're getting ready to start the playoffs in uh, not this weekend, but the following weekend? If I could just add a couple um, to your last point, um, both NBA uh, stories, Bill Russell, more modern, um, you know, played all those years in Boston, yet was not allowed to live in the in in those neighborhoods. Um so that's one thing. Magic Johnson wanted to buy the Lakers or at least a portion. Uh Dr. Buss and the daughter said no. So again, you can have a lot of money or a lot of notoriety and and popularity, 
but it doesn't matter. There's the good old boy network is going to be the good old boy network. So we got to look at other methods. I, I don't really have a problem with the, the play in it. We'll see how it goes. I do agree with your colleague about, you know, does force teams to actually play not tank for to get in the NBA lottery and things of that nature. It, it's a wait and see for me. Uh, as far as teams in the East and the West, um, the East, I would really say it. Uh, I'm a Sixer fan, and they they're having a good year. Uh, I would say uh, Philly and Brooklyn. It's I think it's either one of theirs to lose. Um, Boston is dead in the water. Uh, they've had a miserable season, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, don't Toronto and Milwaukee? I'm not sold on. They they put up numbers all year, and then they don't do well in the playoffs. As far as the West, you know. To me, it's the Lakers to lose, but it all depends on the health of uh, Anthony Davis. They go as far as if he's hurt, you know, and continues with the pain, they won't win. Um, If they do, I I like their chances to at least get back to the finals. Uh, The Clippers, again, a wait and see. They like Milwaukee. They they, on paper, they look good. Uh, They bring in a guard, but I'm not sure about them and. And when you look at a team like Utah, it's been good all year. Again, it's a wait and see. Don't count out Phoenix and Dallas. They could be sleepers. Uh, Dallas might be a little short. But Phoenix is definitely – listen, anywhere Chris Paul goes, they do well. And you can see it uh, with him there at Phoenix. So Phoenix might be a sleeper out west. Who did you say was your team in the east and everything? So I didn't quite catch all of that. But who is the team in the east? Well, I'm a Sixer fan. I think it's either Philly or Brooklyn that I think will get to the uh, the uh, finals. No, I can see they definitely haven't gone to school with Doc. I would love to see that happen and everything. I'm still trying to find out exactly who owned the Negro League, and maybe I'll have that on the next show and everything. But I was right for the vast majority of the Harlem Globetrotters time, and it's now owned by a corporation. But when they were in their early days all the way up until – many years of his ownership, it was Abe Saverstein or something like that. And he was definitely Yiddish or uh, definitely was not in the minority community in the sense of African-American or Latin American or anything of that nature. There's some people that may argue that Yiddish or Jewish is another kind of minority, but definitely he did not fall in the sense of being in our same sphere, in our same class and all of that. So definitely it looks like that was the case way back with the creation of the Harlem Globetrotters way back in the early 1900s. So definitely that's one case. And I think that was also the case with some of the ownership of the Negro League. So I think that there might have been some Negro League owners that were also from white or other societies as well. Well, think about 1921 to 2021. We're still in the same position. Right. Uh, and in my opinion. So <laughs> same in position in a lot of ways, because actually I was on uh, Friends uh, Facebook Live and we were talking about the fact that the uh we're going into year two of uh this current pandemic and the spanish flu lasted from 1918 to 1920 so it lasted about three years so if we're following the same trajectory as the spanish flu we still got another year and a half to deal with this pandemic we're in the middle of as well and that was another global one that was a little bit over 100 years ago, but it seems to me that we're still in that same condition as well, just based on history repeating itself, because like I said. 
And just with the pandemic, listen, I'm not telling you to get the vaccine or not, but do the research. Let's not be zombies and then follow the crowd. I'm not saying all of us, but some of us do that. Oh, I heard this. When you say I heard, you didn't do the research. I heard it was this. I heard it was that. I know uh, we have some fears and anxieties about taking shots like that, especially with our history, Tuskegee experiment, all the experiments that – been done on us like guinea pigs but at least do the research find out what's going on don't do the i heard my cousin this and my uncle that do the research yourself please no we got to do that and we've also got to do that in terms of voting i was actually talking to a friend online not that long ago and we were actually talking about that because one of the things that is one of my pet peeves and i know we just got out of elections but i know that we've got those political action committees i know we've got those uh interest groups like the NAACP and the Urban League and everything else. But it really gets on my nerves when you get those sheets of paper from these different interest groups. And then when you talk to your friends and they basically tell you that they just voted for whatever the people gave them the sheet told them to vote for, and they don't really know why they're voting for the people that they're voting for. And I'm not saying that you can't get some guidance from those sheets and that you can't get some uh, ideas of some of even the uh, issue points that uh, these candidates stand for and everything from those sheets. But I am not a big fan of just what I call blind voting, where, you know, they hand you the sheet, you go in there, and you vote according to what the sheet is. And then if somebody comes in and asks you why you voted for them, you're like, because the uh, um, Durham Affairs uh, told me to, or the People's Alliance told me to, or the Urban League told me to, or this or that organization told me to. So I think that in any of these things, you have to do your due diligence and your due research. And I think that too often we don't do that. We just kind of blindly go along. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's not surprised. Are you, are we really surprised that we follow people on Facebook and follow this and follow that? We some following people. Uh, I always teach my kids to be leaders. We, we can't do that. Well, again, you know, the great philosopher Chris Rock said that the way to hide information from people is just to put it in a book from us, mm-hmm. at least. I mean, you don't have to be uh, politically connected or savvy. You're watching CNN and all that. Just do the work, because at the end of the day, especially with judges uh, locally and, you know, politics is local. At the end of the day, if you don't, then you can't complain about who's in office. If you just vote blindly because when you go to those voting precincts, they give you, like you said, those sheets and here's all the Democrats and here's all this. Uh, And, and of course, we're all Democrats. Right. Um, Right. We're born that way, I guess. Um, And I'm being facetious. But if you at least go online before that and see what they stand for, that's why we have bad judges who put us in jail at 10 times the amount of as you said, Europeans, because we don't know that they're that type of judge because we don't do it or, or the alderman or the mayor or right. your, your, your representative, your senator, senator, all the way up to the presidency. Um, so we have to be able to do the research.
house dogs get dogs. Dogs of the world unite. Dancing dogs.
Welcome back to the show. I'm going to go to Gerald Hoover. Uh, Gerald Hoover is a best-selling author and uh, uh, certainly uh, does a, a phenomenal job. His My Hero series, and we'll talk about that. But uh, who I wanted to touch base with you and ask you in this COVID-19. There's two things going on. We'll start with the education side. As you're a professor, you're an author uh, of those series. You talk about um, not only bullying and mentoring, but education. I mean, being able to spell, being able to write a check i mean even if you don't write checks to learn how to to write signature things of that nature the basic things you know kids don't even know their home keys remember when we were kids we had the type mm-hmm. we knew the home key and all that but right now mm-hmm. in this this covid 19 and we're short on time so i want you to really get into it what are the pluses and minuses on online schooling I, in the beginning my kids were like you know what yeah this is cool we get to do it but now they're getting bored and they want to be around their friends so socially is different but from an education Education learning standpoint, especially with black and brown uh, kids who are uh, not only uh, disadvantaged in some cases in neighborhoods, the books and all of those things. What's the pluses and minuses of learning online? Well, I'm gonna go with more of the. Well, I, it ain't that many pluses to me. Uh, um, I think it's more of the pluses that there's something happening as opposed to just being shut down and there's nothing happening at all. So at least there's something tangible that's being used. You know what I mean? Um, can it work? Yeah, I mean it can. But I, but like you just mentioned, that social, uh, if it, the, the social part of it is part of the the the, the, uh, the dynamic of being able to know how to get along with, with your teammates. Uh, um, uh, I call them teammates, with classmates, uh, knowing how to function, as opposed to everything being robotic, pressing a button, and and that's the one thing I fear. LA is that with my with my book, I have a curriculum, and my curriculum is a full charge curriculum where there's a lot of writing involved. And that's by design because, you know, studies show that your memory is enhanced by writing things down. Also, you use a certain part of the brain when you're writing as opposed to just touching a button. A button. You use a certain part of the brain when you're reading as opposed to just things being sent to you digitally. And I think that's the where, that's where that's, we're going to have a problem. Uh, again, the plus is that we're doing something, you know, so it's better nothing, but... The, the the minuses are a lot. It's it's a, and like you said, the, the, your your young your young men are getting bored. Um, it, it's a lot. And then what happens is the kids are so inundated with these video games. You know, everything is digitized. You know what I mean? So they could be playing Fortnite for four or five hours. Now all of a sudden you're slowing the pace. Now you're trying to tell them to teach. Now you're trying to tell them to learn that way. It's a lot. So so they have to reprogram themselves on even how to learn. As opposed to being away from the computer, you know, instead of being away from the computer and being instructed by a teacher or some sort in the front, in front of them, where she's able to, he or she is able to do things live, you know, and in person, so to speak, and sort of uh, have the um, option of learning things on the fly as well, doing things on the fly. You really can't do things too much like that when you're online. You have to, you know, you have to kind of robot yourself a little bit as well. So, but again, pluses is that they're doing something, minuses are a lot. And, and what I fear is that our children won't get the benefit of really being promoted in a proper manner, meaning earning the promotion. Because right now, you really can't fail a kid. I mean, you can't. I mean, how can you? You know, I mean, how do you fail a kid that, 
that uh, parents may be suffering from COVID, and it, you know what I mean. And, they and them, themselves might have had it. And who? That's that's a really a great point because uh, if you have a marginal kid, a kid that's been struggling, um, it, it, it's probably not doing a great service for that child if you pass them because of the situation, the climate we are in, and even before mm-hmm. this, speak to because I think we had this conversation before about uh, using. You know, I, I'm, I have a real issue with kids using calculators for math. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and not mm-hmm. counting, not writing things out. Like you said, I tell my kids all the time, write it mm-hmm. down, take notes. I, they can go into my studio, my, my, my office, and see nothing but notes. And I try to tell them, not only mm-hmm. take good notes, but make sure you have organized notes. So when you come back to mm-hmm. it, you know what it is. You put your name, date, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and some, mm-hmm. I, I see some of the kids that don't do that, but I get, I have a real issue when they use sort of these electronic things or things mm-hmm. that take away from counting and reading and all of these things, mm-hmm. audio and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Mm-hmm. Well, well I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to give you an analogy because I, I know you'll, you'll catch it. Well, I'm going to give you a saying. I'm going to give you an analogy. You know that, that was saying if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So we, so we understand that part. But now picture a person. That's a couch potato, straight up couch potato, remote in his hand, and beer in the other hand, eating chips, doing this for years, watching TV, you know, shape got different, what have you. Then you say, okay, I want you to get in shape, the best shape of your life within three weeks. But tonight we're going to start off with you running five miles. That person wouldn't. That person wouldn't walk good four blocks. I mean, five blocks really good without him like, oh my gosh, I'm tired. And that's the same thing that's happening with our babies' brains because they're not using that part of the brain like you just mentioned. The pre- all you're doing is pressing the button. You're not trying to figure things out in your head. You know what I mean? So you're not you're not exercising that part of the brain. And we know the brain is an organ, but it acts as a muscle. You might as well call it a muscle because it acts as like a muscle. But if you don't use certain things to critically think, um, conceptualize things, figure things out in your head, ponder over stuff, if you don't use that kind of that part of the brain, when it's time to use it, you can, please I mean, think about how many people. I guarantee you, at your audience, if you ask them, if you have read a book, enough, if you have, if you ask them if they have read a book or a long article in a long time, and they if they're gonna do it before they go to sleep, and say read an article, I guarantee you they fall asleep before they do it. Because that brain ain't ain't being used, so now you're gonna tell me read all this, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Within a certain period of time, that brain is over, is, is, it gets overloaded, and then all of a sudden it starts to shut down because you have to build it, you have to build it back up. And so this is what's happening in LA with too many with too many of our children because they're so used to pressing buttons, pressing buttons, pressing buttons from video games to learning that when you tell them to do certain things, either they can't do it, they don't want to do it, or they don't know how to do it. So guess what? It's not done. And my fear, I mean, I'm saying this, I'm saying this because my, my, my son is 29 years old, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not a concerned parent for him, but I'm a concerned parent for others. Because as an educator, every child that comes into your classroom or any class, any, any, any of me, when I go to schools, those children become my children. And I say it openly. I'm like, for, for, the, for the time being I'm here, you belong to me. Right. And I treat them as they're my children. And so my fear is that because they took penmanship out of schools, you know, so these, these kids don't know how to write cursively, nor can they read it. 
so so I'll, I'll use the word script. They, not not only can they not read the script, they can't I mean, they can't write it, so they can't read it. So now you're telling the 18 year old, 19 year old, go register to do this, sign this application, go do this, and they say sign your name. He's writing in print. He's or she writing in print. And the beat of it or not, the way they write, they're not even writing online. I mean, in other words, you you tell the kid to write in print on the line. They're writing in between the line, and they're writing. I mean, they they're putting their name like uh, they got it across the line because they don't have a concept of writing, bro. That is like scary. Yeah, and that's happening worse for our black and brown babies than it is for other ch- other children because other children, they they the ones that have the means to it, they're being taught how to write and script. Sure. So now, so education system seems they seem to have put that on the parents, which is not fair. Not no no no. When I say fair. Because that's a basic requirement, writing. You know what I mean? That, that, should, that should be something that should be uh, uh, cataloged in schools on, 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 and, and, and should be progressed in schools. Because L.A., that's how we learn. You know what I mean? Our timetables, we get that in school. Right. Our, our writing, our penmanship, you know, writing between the lines, our tracing. Of, you know what I mean? We did that We did that in school because although, it was part of our curriculum. Although I write like a doctor without the money, but, I mean, sign like and, a no, doctor. No, <laughs> hey, 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 me too. And, and here's the funny thing. Me too, and I'm ambidextrous with it. I can write with both hands, left hand, right hand. I can do both, and I can write equally sloppy. So we're in the same boat. Yeah. I get that. But at the end of the day, my friend, we can read that. We, and, we can read some lots of sla- and we can read some lots of sloppy handwriting too because right. we, we're accustomed to doing it. Right. You know what I mean? So, so, but, but again, our babies aren't getting that privilege, and and with that, they're gonna lose so much in this fake, illusion-filled digital-based world right. because it's, it's really an illusion. Yeah. It's an illusion, bro. It's yeah. an illusion. Talking these, with these the, smartphones have made made us dumb. Talking with uh, Gerald Hoover, best-selling author of My Friend, My Hero, a book targeting young black and brown boys ages 12 up and up here on the Bachelor News Radio Show, Bachelor News Radio Network and WCOM, Chapel Hill, and Carborough, uh, uh, North Carolina, and we'll get to the, the book series and info there. Um, really sort of the final uh, phase, and I know you said there's the positives because they're doing something, but again, um, the concern I have is that even before the virus, even before they had to go online, and some are going back to school in certain places, and I mean, you can get into if it's safe or not, that's a whole different discussion for another day, um, but the fact is that, you know, it, kids, even before the virus, and I, and I have to, again, I challenge mine all the time, um, it, it, they work is not, it, I wouldn't say it was necessarily fun for us, but, mm-hmm. you know, we knew we had to do that, and we knew at the end of the day it was going to make us better. Even sometimes we mm-hmm. didn't feel like going to school. I tried to play hooky, my mother found out all the time, but I had to do what I had mm-hmm. to do. And it didn't seem mm-hmm. as forced on us as it is with kids. Kids are like, okay, if you, you do this, you can play this, or you can go outside. And they push and they zooming through it. But at the same time, you want to tell them, no, take your time. Because a lot of teachers say, take your time, read the, read the questions, you know, when you're taking the test. And it seems like the ki- these kids, our kids, are trying to zoom through a lot of the, the work. And they don't seem to get it. It's more robotic than... Mm-hmm consumption and understanding and comprehending it. You, you, you buy mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that, that's the fear. And, 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 and matter of fact, you said it eloquently, but you basically repeated what I was saying and the way I said it. When, it, when our babies get a certain age, 
they're not going to be able to function other than doing what they've known. It's almost like putting a, you know, you know, they put the uh, blinds on horses, run that straight, run a straight line. They won't know how to do anything else. But oh, it's not, it's not set in stone this way. They won't be able to do it. And that's where too many of our child, children are going to fail. That's where they're going to fail because they won't have options on how to do things any other way. And that's going to, that, and that's a criminal act if you ask me. It's a criminal act. It's written because. I, and, and that's why I said fake, illusional, filled world, because you'll say, oh, no, he got a so-and-so on his test. But, yeah, he was pressing a button that you helped him press because you're trying to get that funding because the state mandated so-and-so and so-and-so, which the state has no – they have no clue what's going on on the ground. They're a bunch of bean counters and doing whatever they're doing. They have no clue or concept of what is done on the educational level, none, because if they did or if their children was in the belly of the beast – they wouldn't have that kind of. They wouldn't have that kind of outlook. And, me, and, and, just to, been, and just to interrupt too, if they if our kids aren't learning, again, post uh, pre and post COVID nineteen, they're ready to mm-hmm. put them ready to put them on meds, you know, Ritalin and whatever, oh my it, it, whatever. Man, um, and, 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 and bro, in LA, I was I believe it or not pre COVID. As a matter of fact, you we've had discussion about my book before COVID. Pre COVID, well, I started my curriculum. Two years ago, I mean, like getting it in stone. So I, I so I'm, I'm well ahead of the COVID part. I was yelling and screaming about in 25 years if we're not careful that we're gonna have an educational apocalypse. I was saying this for about two years now. Now it's probably gonna be closer than that because we're gonna lose two and a half years. Okay, this way for every child I was already behind, tack on two more years. They don't go. They're not gonna fail a kid. They're going to promote them socially. But think about the average 10th grader that's ready for college, getting ready for college in two years. They're going to be functioning on a sixth-grade reading level or sixth-grade sixth grade work level. So, so that so, means when they graduate high school and, and graduate to go to college, they're going to, they're going to, it's going to be a, very, a real challenge. So real, real quick, because we're running out of time, um, what would be some of the solutions you have, you know, right now with COVID and, and moving forward? And please do. I'll let people know how they can get my friend, my hero, talk about the book and, and where they can find it. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll do that first because it's fresh in my head. Uh, my, my website is called The Hero Book Series, right? theherobookseries.com. Um, for those that are educators or they want to uh, do some homeschooling, help, help them enhance, you can order my book, and I will even let you know how to get the curriculum to go with it. Now, the curriculum uh, it has a study a study guide which you have to write, read, uh, do some uh, uh, research to learn how to do words, how to put words together, context clues. I mean, it's, it's, it was the same thing you, you would, would happen in the school. Also, have a teacher's edition to where you have the answers. So, for you parents that have young children, okay, Johnny, do this, do this, do this. You as a parent, whether you've been to school lately or not, it's okay. You have the teacher's guide. You have the answers. The sentences you have answers to, to, to multiple choice stuff you have the you have all the answers. I even have a pretest where you can say here, Johnny, take this and let me see how you can do with that. Then I have what's called a unit assessment, and I have answers for that as well. So you have a student success guide, you have a teacher's edition, and you have a unit assessment. So you have all those, and you're good. What I would suggest: put a physical book in your child's hand. E-learning is fine. I, my book is on tape now. It's coming out in about a month. I, I even have e-books, which, okay, I, I'm not really for them, but I know people, I don't want to read it like that. 
that's fine. But put a physical book in your hand. The five senses that we're blessed with are given to us for a reason. Putting a physical book in your hand speaks volumes to the mental, soul, mind, and body. There's a lot of – and go on YouTube and research touch on how the effects are of touching a book. Google that. Touch it, touching a book. Wow. How powerful – you start that your knowledge starts to your your knowledge starts LA with just touching the book. It's powerful. I I, I just saw that I just saw something like that the other day. And it's funny because I've been thinking about it. Because you know you know I give you an example. Let me let me say this really quick. I'm going to show you on time. In the in the in the Bible. I'm, I'm sorry. In, in church, people have told me. I'm, I remember old ministers were telling me. I would say, well, Elder so and so, what do I learn? What do I read in the Bible? What should, how, what should I do? They, they, you know they would tell me. Say a prayer. Put your hand on top of the Bible and just open it. Meaning I heard that meaning, before. You'll find it. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying, Ella, Ella, You know where I'm going. You know where I'm going. You know. Going, there was something powerful about putting your mind right with it, coming, becoming one with the story that you're about to read, and then opening the book deep with that. That's deep. And, and so we keep giving these books, these, 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 these digital books and everything. You ain't helping these kids. Put a book in your hand. Put a physical book. The five senses are, are given to us for a reason. That's if right. you dummy us out with that, we ain't going to have them, buddy. We're gonna be ro- people are going to be robots. That's right. It's not going to work for us. Yeah. It's not, not going to work for us, bro. And the learning is, is robotic at this point because of that. Come on, man. Yeah, you're right. Come you're on, absolutely man. right. Come on, man. Yeah. Come on, we, we're gonna, we can't afford that, bro. We can't. We can't. And you talk about apocalypse. Oh my God! You, you, <sighs> you, on, being, you, you get your Negro Diamonds points because you have been talking about this for quite some time. So uh, I know that for a fact. Hoove, I love you, man. Appreciate you. Be safe. Uh, I'll talk too, with you very, very soon. We'll get you on next week and talk some you, more about this. Okay. My pleasure, my brother. Take Be care, safe, man. All right, man. I don't see a daddy. 
to the show. Don't forget, if you missed any part of our broadcast, you can go to our website, uh, thebachelornews.airtime.pro, and listen to the show in its entirety at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time uh, at that website, every day at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Speaking of that, my next guest uh, airs uh, his show on Saturdays there on the Bachelor News Radio Network. He is a senior pastor at Maximum Life Worship Center in Greensboro. And the uh, host, of course, if you will, the, the Life Cafe broadcast airs, as I mentioned, every Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Pro. He is Pastor Omar Rojas. And, Pastor, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you on, sir. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to, to, be, to be on with you. Thank you so much. And I always have you on. You know, you always have great answers for some thought-provocative uh, uh, topics. And, you know, I wanted to have you on. We just finished this election, and, you know, even with that, people want to feel like they can breathe now. Uh, vaccine, vaccine, um, um, the vaccine are on the way, so they say. And, um, you know, people are trying to look for hope. There's still a lot of divide, as you know. We don't have to get into all the, the political stuff. But there's still stress, and there's still people who want to have some sense of normalcy, some stability. So with scriptures and what you would say um, just directly, what would be the thing that you would say in regards to what the Word would say in terms of applying some faith and some instructions to your life to make people feel better and, and know that it's going to be better. Right. Uh, it, it is, uh, you know, facing a lot of challenging times. You know, it would be nice if there was just one thing going on that we could kind of process, but uh, um, the way society and, and the way life is, is right now, it's, uh, it's a lot of things all at one time. Um, but, you know, you know, we all we all face a lot of things. You know, even you know beyond what's what's going on in our in our world today, we, we face a lot of challenges from from day to day. And so, you know, for for those of us you know believers, you know, it's it's one of those, as the scripture would say, to you know to hold fast to our uh, profession of faith. You know, and and another that says, you know, you know, in in due season we'll we'll reap if we faint not. And so challenging as 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 things are right now, we still do. 
have to look to God. We have to look to God in, 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 in these situations and, and, and again, hope fast, believing that, that he will, you know, show up as he, as he has in times past. And that's one of the things that I, I do personally is, is, is I reflect on different times that, that he has uh, come through for me. You know, of course, while I was going through a specific something, um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily see a way out. You know, but hindsight, I can see where, you know, he uh, showed up for me. And so, you know, I personally take, you know, take the time to look back at those times and, and remind myself that, you know, even though I may not see him the way I want to see him in, you know, in this situation, he's proven to show up before. And, you know, with his um, track record, if you will, it gives me personally the encouragement I need to, to, to keep going because he's always shown up for me. He's just joining us. We're talking with uh, Pastor Omar Rojas uh, on the Bastard News Radio Show on the Bastard News Radio Network. Pastor, do you have you had to do much counseling, if you will, uh, many of your sermons uh, in the midst of this virus, uh, even you know leading up to it, uh, and with the chaos of the political uh, climate? The, the racial climate have you ha- had to do more in that that area because of it uh i wouldn't have had to do more but i uh at, with with those particular things in mind but maybe as a as a result of you know it's just a common a whole bunch of things a culmination of things there, there has seemed to be um more more conversations and 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 you know um advice giving if, if i can just use the proper terms uh tonight <laughs> You know, just the more uh, wisdom giving uh, at this particular moment, because uh, as, as we're talking, as we're talking about, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of things going on. And uh, again, I, I, I believe it's just because of all of these things all happening all at one time. You know, COVID nineteen and, and and what we've been living through this pandemic, we've been living through for oh, I'm not sure how many months now, uh, roughly since February, March of yeah, this about, year, about nine months, uh, I believe. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's been some time, and, you know, people are going through some things, you know, the the whole quarantine and, and you know, essentially being isolated. And, and I think we talked about this before in the previous show, uh, you, know, some, you know, some people are being locked in places that they don't want to be in, you know, when, when we're talking about home, you know, in a home situation. Um, and so, you know, the difficult difficulties that come from that uh, have, have been very real. And so, yeah, we, we, we've, we've done a lot of, I don't want to say counseling, but a lot of uh, advice giving as a result of a lot of things that have been going on in 2020. You know, the one thing I saw, again, not to get too political or anything, but uh, when President-elect Biden was deemed the winner and at 270 electoral votes, uh, mm-hmm. you saw masses of people all across the country and even, you know, other countries uh, as well, dancing in the streets and excited and <laughs> and crying and relieved. Um, do they miss, though, even believers, do, do they miss at the end of the day that with everything that was going on, and again, just, you know, trying to not to, to be biblical as, you know, you're the, the scholar, but... Did they miss that God is still God? Did they miss the point? Did, are they you thinking they're getting that? I mean, because they sell, you know, the, the wicked witch is dead. You know, if they're not right. a Trump supporter, so they're dancing in the streets and, and doing all these things. Or, or do you feel like we're not getting the point after all that's gone through and after all we're still going through? I, I do think that we have, um, just as, as 
as believers in, in general? It, it, it almost seems, and, and, and you hit the nail on the head um, in asking the question, is that, you know, I, I think we've lost sight of the fact that, that as believers that, that you know, we, sh- we should and ought to believe that God is in control. And I think we've, we've, we've lost sight of that as a whole, not everybody, but just, you know, as a whole. And, 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 and honestly speaking, um, there have been, uh, some people that are close to me that, that, that have, it, it, I, I just have become really disappointed because of, it seems as if we have more faith in the presidency than we do God. And, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's been this, this, a disheartening and, and, and disappointing last couple of weeks or a week or so, however long it's been, just seeing, you know, again, more faith in the presidency than, than, than in the, the God that we uh, say that we serve and the, and the God that we believe in and follow and have given our lives to. Yeah, I was, I was talking to someone that uh, it mentioned that and, and, and basically was, was saying that we should not lose our way, that uh, if right. we feel, again, if you're anti-Trump in this particular case or any, any position that your candidate won, you feel like, yes, your vote counted, but now is a new day from your behalf if you voted that way. But it's a higher power, it's a higher uh, position that allowed your candidate to win. And I don't think that uh, some people understand that. And it was um, an old friend of mine that was uh, pointing that out to me today. But your, your thoughts on that? Well, but that's, that's absolutely true. It's, you know, it's like the Bible says, God, you know, God puts up one and takes down another. Um, so, you know, who's in office, whether we like it or not, <laughs> you know, um, has has been set there by God as believers, even if we don't agree with what whatever the turnout is or was or I don't even know the correct term to put it at this particular point. Um, uh, you know, our, our position has to always be a position of prayer. You know, regardless of whether we like the candidate or not, or whether we agree with 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 you know you know their policies and so on and so forth. Our our position has to be a position of prayer um and, you know uh, because you know, as, as the bible says you know the heart of the king is in the lord's is in the lord's hands um and so and and he can turn that heart so you know you know again we have to really really have a, a position or even a posture of prayer uh for leaders again whether we like them or not and that's the hard part um because <laughs> And this is this is going to be tough, but you know we we oftentimes only pray for the people that we like, um, but that's not what prayer is about. And so uh, again, we have to pray for our leadership, uh, whether we like them or not, uh, so that you know we can see God move on you know on our behalf, on the people's behalf. What do you think of? I was reading online for um, some. It was a Christian site, and there were some people that said, you know, uh, a you know. God doesn't make accidents. There's no accident. Everything right. is right. right. But but mm-hmm. B that this COVID is, you know, lack of a better word is you know something that God allowed to bring people mm-hmm. together to to uh, send a clear message. Is that what you 
understand? Um, I, I can I can understand that, um, but I I can also you know say that it, it could be the result of of poor decision making or or even based on how it's spread. Uh, you know, for some, not all. You know, uh, through touching things we're not supposed to be touching. You know, you know. So and 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 look at the things that we have to do. We you know we have to cover our mouths or we have to clean our hands, wash our hands. You know, before, during, after. You know, we have to be a little bit more. Uh, conscious of, of, of you know, the things that we're touching. So, you know, does God allow things? Absolutely. And is it to bring people closer together? Is, is, is it to, you know, I, I, I wish I could, you know, I had the answer for that. But, you know, as, as the Bible would say, the, uh, a curse causeless does not come. So there is a reason, a reasoning behind you know, COVID-19, and I'm not trying to, you know, say it's something political or it's the government or I'm not saying any of that. Um, I'm just, you know, simply, you know, from the Bible standpoint, the cur- a curse causes does not come. So it could be re- the result of, of, of poor decision making years ago or whatever the case may be. Um, but, but it, it's not, as we would say, happenstance that COVID-19 is, is, is here. You know, what would you, final thoughts, what would you, uh, what scripture, um, would you, uh, refer people to? Uh, I know people at this point want stability. They want peace. Uh, they, they want um, hope. They want to know that it's all is going to be okay, and and certainly we can go to the word to find that. But what would you um, put out there for people to kind of read and get some encouragement? Right now, I would, um, and and it's a super, super familiar passage of scripture um, um, that I'm, I'm actually going to probably read really quickly. Uh, sure. And it is, uh, and again, something we probably all heard at least twice in our life. This might be the second time for somebody. Uh, um, but and, and uh, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, and to them who are called according to His purpose. Um, and 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 that's the scripture that gives us hope. Uh, I do want to. I, I do want to add not to this scripture, but but add to the context of the scripture, uh, because uh, you know a lot of times, especially you know in the church or as believers, we say this you know often that 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 you know things work together. Um, the way we state state it really is is they, they work for my good, but that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that things work together for good, right? Um, and so here's the thing, and I think I said this in a previous uh, broadcast or interview, um, and, and that's this, is that I have to make sure that my good and God's good look the same. And uh, because, again, the Scripture says for good to them that love God, not my good, but good. Uh, I, I say that because all these things, these, these experiences that we're having, these situations that we're facing, these dilemmas, these issues, and, you know, whatever word we want to use tonight, it's going to work for good. Um, and, and, and here's the beauty of, of it working for good, and that's this, is that this, this passage of Scripture talks about things working for good. These things work for good when we process them in prayer. So, so, so tonight, if I can encourage anybody um, in, in situations and things that we're going through is that to always keep that 
commute that line of communication to open with God. Always keep committing things to prayer. I know it doesn't seem like it's working. I know it doesn't seem like God is moving. But if we continue to process these things in prayer, even when they're not moving, even when things uh, are stagnated, uh, uh, not again, not moving. If we continue to process those things in prayer, continue to 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 you know share our hearts with God, you know. The, the, the parts we want to share and the things that we don't want to share with God, if we continue to process those things out in prayer, that's when Romans 8.28 is, is literally unlocked for us, where things start working together for good when we process these things in prayer. So I encourage you, uh, for those you know, who, 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 who would like to read the Bible, go back and actually read Romans 8 uh, in its entirety, and you'll see and be able to capture that Romans eight twenty eight comes after prayer. Um, so, you know, a lot of times we get mad with God because things may not be working for our good, but my question is, is have we really processed these things in prayer? Have we really committed these situations uh, and circumstances in prayer? So uh, I, I don't want to uh, go over my time. I, I know that I'm long-winded. No, <laughs> but, no, but, but, but please, by all means, Continue to process these things in prayer, and then we will see these things work together for our, for good. And it's funny too, uh, uh, Pastor, that someone had emailed me. You mentioned you know purpose, and uh, someone emailed Proverbs uh, nineteen twenty one. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose yeah. of the Lord that will stand. And uh, someone also wrote uh, or sent in. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare yeah. and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that's okay. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, one of my actual favorites, too. Uh, Pastor, uh, before you go, uh, please do let people know where they can find your church, your, your church times, and all of that information, sir. Absolutely. Uh, we are, and I say this often, we are, are located in the great metropolis of Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, but we are on 29, we are at, excuse me, 2902 East Market Street, again, in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, our service times, we have uh, our, what we call Life Cafe, uh, which is also our radio broadcast on Saturdays, right, uh, between 5 and 6, uh, uh, Saturday evenings, I'm sorry. Um, but we have our Life Cafe, which is our version of Bible study at 8.30 a.m. on Sundays, and then we go into prayer uh, in the service right at 9.15. Uh, and, of course, we do have Bible studies on Wednesdays at 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, that's Maximizing Life Family Worship Center, home of the Max Life Church. That's the name. That's the uh, Facebook page. Uh, you can go there uh, and, and, and hit like, and, and you'll be able to uh, stream live with us there. Um, but we would love for you to be our personal guest. And if, if I can have just about two seconds, uh, this coming Thanksgiving, uh, we're having. Hey.
20 years ago just to pimp toes Every day new clothes, look at the cut coupons On three got the heat, so bluff it Slangin' patty, because it's more than 20 ducats Drunk it, kinda rich, now his pockets looking straight Slam the D's on the benzo pancake by the gate Mom's looking straight with her half, she got great Lounging in her new home, that's about to stay I'll be your poor male motel, you can get it when you want it Even though you got chicks all up on it Don't matter, cause mother you fly, I can't lie I've been macking daddy from the corner of my eye Now baby bring it on, don't be frontin' on your baby I wanna know is what's up with you, how can I get with you? Seems like you got a hold on me, it must be voodoo, cause baby I want you. About so big, uh-huh. about so small, yeah. about this length, uh-huh. about this width, uh-huh. about this flow, right. about this gift. Yeah. Instinct me and me right up your alleyway. Skip the moet, let's chill with some Alize. Enough stress in our day. Let me massage your mind as my mental start to play. A ghetto sauce you are, and I'll be your sexual chocolate bar. And I gotta keep strong for the cause, and you gotta keep Strong for the tours, brother man and me, damn the family. What else could we be with no one understands up but me? You were the first to tame me. Uh, big teeth, I'm out. Welcome back to the show. We thank you for joining us. Don't forget, if you miss any part of the broadcast, you can go to our website, check the rebroadcast out at thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. T-H-E, Bachelor with a T, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. Go to my guest. He is an adjunct professor of legislative politics, specifically religion and politics at George Washington University Graduate School. Also a reverend, uh, of course, uh, back on the show, we appreciate him. He is Professor Quadrico Bernard Driscoll. And, Professor, I appreciate you coming on. As always, I hope all is well with you, sir. Happy MLK Day to you, LL, and to your listeners. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so you wrote a, a very good piece on um, Reverend Warnock's uh his victory, but of course the the uh, ordeals and the the things that he's gone through since he won um, the runoff as a, a senator in Georgia. People don't know Reverend Warnock, of course, the uh, Democrat in Georgia who won. He beat his Republican uh, a rival, and now he's one of two uh, Democratic senators. Um, which thank you to them uh, help the Democrats. If you're a Democrat. Um, that basically have the uh, majority in the Senate because obviously President, uh, Vice President-elect 
Harris will be the tiebreaker, so it is goals in the favor of the Democrats. But your, your article was uh, what the attacks on Raphael Warnock's faith reveal about Christian nationalism. And I thought it was spot on. Uh, this is a man who took over Ebenezer Baptist Church, famed of the, 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 the Church of Reverend Dr. King on Dr. King Day, um, been very consistent in terms of his social injustice platform, from a Christian perspective, right? But, you know, the, the, the scripture tells us to speak out about injustices, right? That's part of it. And he did that in a Christian way. But two things about your article I thought was re- really well written. You talk about how Republicans um, have have this sense of or, or this entitlement of the moral authority, but filled with hypocrisy. Because if they have the moral authority, these are the same Republicans that criticized his opponent, criticized him as, you know, being tied to Reverend uh, Jeremiah Wright, of course, who, of course, uh, people were critical of former President Obama in that regard as his pastor and that that type of thing. But also, these are the same white Christians, let's keep it real, um, that support number 45. So you can support a guy who says only Jews can count my money, who I I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away. I can grab a woman by the private parts. Um, I can, uh, you know, the, the Central Park Five need to get, you know, executed. This is the same guy that you supported. In the name of God, I guess. I don't know what God it is. But talk about that, how it's, it's so hypocritical of them trying to have this moral authority. And I guess they left the morals at the door. Meanwhile, this man is standing for truth and justice and doing it the right way. Uh, L.A., I think you have summarized the article pretty well. Um, So, you know, essentially I reflect on the election of uh, Georgia Senator-elect Raphael Warnock, right, and the the Capitol insurrection that took place January 6th and the deep divisions within the American Christian community and the, those events of what it has exposed under the umbrella of Christian nationalism, which is the heart of what, what you are referring to and talking about. So the hypocrisy that you are mentioning with regard to the Republicans uh, have always, quite frankly, been there. It, it started with those who were uh, slave owners and slave masters, but yet Christians, right, which we knew was a hypocrisy. We knew, of course, that um, that's a direct opposition to what it means to be a Christian. But more formally, uh, the Republican Party claimed to be the party of the faithful through the identification of the religious right, which started with the moral majority. Names like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robinson, which started in the late 60s, right? You had Vietnam, you had the civil rights movement, you had the sexual revolution. That's taking place in the background. But yet there are these uh, Midwestern, Southern, typically middle class folk who are starting this moral maturity, um, and we know, again, we, I called some of those names. And so their belief was that this country needed to shift its values, and they packaged such those values in non-religious terms and started to focus more on the social issues, and thus they gained power. 
those are the same people um, that were a part and of the Tea Party uh, that we saw, of course, at the end of Bush's term going into Obama's term. And it's the same people that we saw January 6th uh, during the Capitol insurrection. They haven't gone anywhere. It's just the manifestation. And I, and I chose to, to focus on the nuances with regard to white fragility, white immunity, white supremacy, whatever we want to call it, um, the election, of course, of Warnock being the first African-American senator from the state of Georgia, from the South particularly, and this encasing this, of course, in this idea that to be a true American and to be a true Christian means that one has to be white and typically male and, and Christian and that the rest of us should just be grateful for having lived in this country. But then what does that mean when we live in a country that, per the Constitution, right, that allows freedom of religion, and where Christianity specifically is used as sort of a civil religion, right? We know, and what I mean by civil religion, it is this term that a sociologist came up with where we use these semi-religious tools and symbols as a way, particularly with the Abrahamic faith traditions, as a way of healing the country through difficult times. You know, every president has, has done that. But, of course, we see 45 using Christianity as a weapon and to empower his supporters, right? Uh, and so th- I, I, I choose or chose to talk about all of that, and this is, again, under the umbrella of Christian nationalism, which is dangerous. And, of course, the Republican Party has unfortunately, uh, again, starting from a more organized political perspective from the late 1960s up until now, using it as a weapon. And this is also precisely why we saw 45 Trump remove peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square in June of last Mm. year to hold up a Bible, right? So unlike other presidents who have used these Christian symbols as means to bring the country together, regardless of whatever faith tradition most Americans are, Trump used it to endorse Christian nationalism, which again is this uh, very oppressive way of weeding out other people who are not white and Christian. You know, uh, Professor, when you you, it's funny you used to say that. And oh, by the way, he was at Lafayette Square um, with the Bible upside down. I mean, this is the same guy who said two Corinthians. I mean, and thought it was cool and thought he was like doing something and saying something. He he, he didn't even know how to, to, to quote the scripture. But anyway, I digress. Uh, but you know, you mentioned in your article, I thought it was very good that you talk about how you know it. it, it you know, Amy Barrett, Judge. Uh, Amy Barrett is on the uh, Supreme Court, um, you know, was it was like hands off with her. She's this Christian leader. And how dare you, you know, come after her with her Catholic faith and how, you know, she stands on her values and belief. But the black reverend, I guess, is just this crazy black dude is just I guess my point is, is that it it, it still comes down to race when you look at. Amy Barrett, she's this, you know, soccer mom, nice Catholic woman, and, you know, pure as snow. 
And this guy is just this radical black guy, just trying to radical, you know, it's just trying to get the get the, the the natives, the blacks, all all riled up. And he's really not about anything. He can't be a man of faith. He can't be a man of God because he's black, and we black, and and we just want our way. I mean, it just seems like that hypocrisy is right there. That even our even our black leadership is not deemed as. Uh, on the same level when it comes to white Christians and that whole um, uh, Christianity when it comes to Christian nationalism for me, which means uh, the way in the, in the way that you per- portrayed it in, in your article that typically means white Christians. Right. Right. You, I mean, so what we saw during, during the Supreme court hearing with, Amy Coney Barrett, who is now Justice Barrett, I suppose, was Democrats, by and large, the Senate Democrats, it was hands off about talking about her very conservative right-wing Christian faith, right? It, right. I mean, they absolutely didn't mention it. And, and, and it wasn't just that it was a right-wing Christian faith. It was kind of extreme, right, it, uh, to, to an extent. But yet, again, I mentioned this in the article, uh, it was somehow fair game to attack Warnock and his faith tradition, as it, of course, was to attack uh, uh, Jeremiah Wright, who we know, of course, famously is or was Obama's pastor. And then, of course, lumped in James Cone, who is the uh, father of black liberation theology and, and other uh, preachers, Calvin Otis Butts, who's now the current pastor, of course, at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. And quite frankly, this is King. Uh, they, these are the same people, the lineage, right, the, the, a new different generation that attacked Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, because what we have to understand, and you said it boils down to race. Well, of course it boils down to race, right? Recall the – it's an old photo, and it's a picture of the Ku Klux Klan. And they're in a church, and right above it, it says, Jesus saves. So, again, this goes all the way back, quite frankly, to the days of when Africans arrived to this country. And we were forced, quite frankly, with Christianity down our throat, although we always had a belief, of course, in God. And, it, and, and, it, and from, from our oppression – came in, in many respects, uh, black liberation theology and the social gospel movement, which gave the uh, which which provided the spiritual underpinnings for the civil rights movement. And King was rooted in such tradition. Raphael Warnock is rooted in such tradition. I'm rooted in such tradition, and that is the prophetic tradition that. African, most African Americans, I should say, or I shouldn't, I would, some, not most, some African Americans are rooted in. And it, and it started with a, a pastor in Augusta, Georgia, William Jefferson White, uh, who, who right. is, is somehow credited with that social gospel movement who put the word of God, so to speak, as we say in the church, into practice, ensuring that Jesus came for the oppressed. Jesus himself being an African Palestinian Jew to set the captives mm. free, right? So we, we know this, but again, in the night, in the in a more politic more politicized 
organized formally in the 60s against these white Christian conservatives. And Trump is a means to an end. This is why they are able to ignore his grabbing of women's vaginas. This is why they are able to ignore his, his bastardization of Scripture, because he's a means to an end. He serves their purpose. And he serves their purpose, of course, by putting an Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. You know, I, I just need you to say, uh, Jesus was who? I, I just need you to repeat that. <laughs> that Jesus is and was an African Palestinian Jew. <laughs> okay, I just need you to re- repeat that for the audience, uh, uh, folks. And that's a whole different deep conversation, uh, Professor. Uh, we we have to get you on to talk about it again. And you know, they, you know, Scripture says, you know, you know them by their fruit, right? So you know uh, the fruit of of these people and how they they this this Christian imperialism that's taking place that was forced upon us. Like you said, we believe we we have our relationship with with our God with Christ. You know, and the Christianity part is a whole different thing. But anyway, I want to read this real quick because I know you only got a lot of time. But part of your article, you said the black tradition of the social gospel equipped uh, civil rights leaders with much of their movement's intellectual underpinning. Essentially, to attack Warnock as radical is to attack square on the legacy of Dr. King. Very good point. Like Warnock, he believed that racism, sexism, materialism, I mean, militarism, Poverty, classism were deeply ingrained inequities uh, that long have threatened America's democratic ideals. Whenever religious figures speak in the prophetic tradition that critiques American imperialism and exceptionalism, they are vilified as anti-American. You talk about tropes going on. Should we even be surprised with this? And uh, and the, the second part of it is, you know, we we not just are as our 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 black pastors like yourself, our reverends, we are supposed to be preaching love and you know, um love, 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 love and love, 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 love. <laughs> not justice, not equality, none of that thing. It's almost like we again, we have to be we have to acquiesce, we have to be non threatening and they won't, God forbid, something happens to this man that he serves for a long time as a senator. When he moves on and goes home, he, you know, they'll appreciate him then, just like in, like you said, in the lines of Dr. King. Now they want to do that. I have a dream speech. They don't want to talk about the speech he talked about, you know, the danger of a moderate white. So, or, um, you know, when he called out the, the uh, rabbis and others from, from his uh, his jail cell, and when he talked about Vietnam and talked against that, they don't want to talk about that part. They want to do the kumbaya part. Right. Look, um, there, there are two things, and and, and again, I, don't, I didn't come on in my role as as a as a pastor as a preacher, but Luke four eighteen says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor." Right to heal the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of slight sight, excuse me, to the blind. And then Matthew goes on to articulate, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you gave me shelter. When I was, you know, naked, you clothed me. This is what is in scripture, and this is 
part of the social gospel movement is all about. So, and, and, and I think we also have to be very clear. In those two scriptures I just gave, that within itself is rooted in love. Because King called for us to be more of a love-oriented society and less of a thing-oriented society. And love, right, is a peace that is just as powerful as any weapon. So it is not this sort of kumbaya, sentimental-type feeling of love, but it is a radical love that shifts the power from those who are the oppressors to ensuring that the oppressed have access, that the oppressed have food, something to eat, something to drink, housing, shelters, and to set them ultimately free as indicated in Scripture.
snuggled up, now it's time to buckle up. So call me Lady Cutie and I'll pick you up. 